You may be seated. Our God is mighty to save. I hope you believe that this morning, that we serve a God that has all power in his hands, and he can do all things. Amen. Mm, mm, mm. Mm, mm, mm. All right. I'm a little emotional this morning, so y'all got to bear with me. Um, for no other reason than our God is good, and he's worthy to be praised. And so songs like this, my God is mighty to save. If it doesn't stir your souls to worship, um, that you might need to check where you are. Um, because our God is impressive. If there's nothing else that he does, and that's easy to say. We can walk past that real quickly. If God don't do nothing else for me, I'm good. But if God did nothing else but send his son to the cross and then raise him from the grave. That's enough to make you joyously worship for the rest of eternity. And, and, and you, you don't gotta look around at nobody else to see that. You just gotta look at you. You see, I, I, I know what my life used to look like. I, I know what I used to be. And so when I hear that my God is mighty to save, that's enough for me. And let's, get, let's, let's get moving. Before we jump in the text, uh, as you guys know, Pastor Larry is over in Malawi, Africa with a, with a team over there. And so he sent us an update this week. And so I thought it fitting, uh, based on the, myself and the other the elders, uh, so, thought it fitting to share it with you guys. Uh, and, uh, and God worked it out so that it actually is a nice little intro to what we're going to talk about uh, today. So I'm going to share with you just, uh, uh, can you turn me down a tiny bit, uh, uh, share with you uh, Pastor Larry's email uh, to us. Um, y'all ready for this? Are you sure? Because it's going to rock your minds. Uh, I will be very brief. Uh, what God is doing on this trip is way beyond all of our expectations. In short, we see incredible opportunities for ongoing partnership for church planning. Pastor Manda is a truly more remarkable and uniquely gifted man. Yesterday, we met with 13 of the big chiefs from the villages. The meeting was amazing. By the end of the morning, many of them had renounced witchcraft and occultic practices. In the afternoon, they said, just tell us about this Jesus and hold nothing back. I have never felt the presence of the Holy Spirit in my preaching the way I did then. At the end of our time, at least eight of the chiefs gave their lives to Christ. Uh, one of the chiefs confided and recapped after it was over and said to please pray for him because he, he has changed the direction of his life and he never wants to go back again. There is such a hunger here for the true gospel in a place where heresy is everywhere. 
uh, before we left, they said that they had received us as guests, but now they realize that we were their brothers and sisters. Our God is mighty to save. Amen. Let's, let's dive into the text, if you would. Let's, let's stand as is our custom, and uh, as you're standing, turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 96 this morning. Uh, once you get there, say amen. I didn't hear no amens. Amen. <laughs> amen. Psalm. It's after Job, before Proverbs. You can look in your concordance and grab the number if you need to. Amen. Y'all ready? All right. Well, I'll start us off. You guys join in. Uh, Here we go. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Keep reading. the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are so thankful that you're a God that's still in the business of saving lives and saving souls and saving hearts and transforming people, bringing them from darkness into the light. God, that has been your goal ever since uh, Genesis chapter 3 when man turned his back on you and thought that his way was better than yours. And so, God, we play a role, a distinct role in allowing the nations to see how glory, how glory, uh, how much glory you have, God. And so uh, might we be provoked in our hearts today uh, as we look at your word and we're encouraged by it and it instructs us in every way. Uh, so we just pray that in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all of God's people said amen. 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 You may be seated. Um, Today, um, we are going to be talking about, or the title of this sermon is Evangelism as Worship. Evangelism as Worship, uh, which is quite fitting as we've been going through the worship series. Pastor E has been taking us through the worship series, if you've been trekking with us. Uh, And as I began to uh, comb through the scriptures, I was originally just intent on preaching about evangelism and missions and uh, what God's role for uh, the redeemed people are, the covenant community are. And as I began to look at it, I I found uh, uh, with some surprising uh, sense that 
uh, evangelism and worship are uniquely tied together in relationship, right? Uh, one of the, one of the uh, beautiful things about getting an opportunity to preach when Pastor E is gone is we get to do what's called standalone sermons, which uh, allows us to kind of just preach on something that's kind of been on our hearts for a while. Uh, and, and what I'm going to speak to you about today has been ruminating in my soul for a while, uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, three years ago, um, in June, June 6th, my father passed away. Uh, very difficult for me, loved him dearly. Uh, so it was a, I mean, I, I just, I, I loved, loved my dad. I mean, it's, it, like for, uh, for the fatherlessness that goes on, uh, and for those of you who grew up without dads, like there's, there's, there's something about having a dad in your life that just can't be replaced, right? And if you grew up without a dad, you know that, right? Uh, the great thing is that, that, that we get to experience God as our father uh, in ways that we couldn't experience even our, our natural fathers, right, which is the great thing. But uh, three years ago, my, my dad passed away. And three months before that, I remember it distinctly. Uh, I, you know, me and my wife had just had our first daughter. And um, or was it? No, she was about a year old. Uh, and she was going away for the weekend. My dad was coming to stay with me uh, for the weekend, and I was very excited because uh, it was the first time my dad was going to stay the weekend with me since I had been married. I had my own house at that point, uh, and you know I was just hyped to spend some time with my dad. But there was a there was another purpose in mind. Like my my I had ulterior motives for why I was that excited to spend time with him, and I had been praying with some of my friends and and some of the guys who were walking with me, and I really 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 wanted to share the gospel with my dad. Uh, and, and I was excited to do it, man. I was waiting for him to come over. I'm like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share that. I'm just going to, I just want, I had never, like I had had some conversations with him, but I never really got to, to talk to my dad about the good news of Jesus Christ, right, since I had been walking with Jesus. And, uh, and so the, the weekend comes and it goes, and I never had that conversation with him. Never had the conversation with him. We, we talked a lot. He even, we, we had even some deep conversations where he shared some things with me that, I, that, that for the first time I was like, man, he's never, my dad's never shared anything like that with me before. And he, and he shared those things with me, and I never once told him about the good news of Jesus. The weekend passed. Uh, I get a phone call three months later um, saying he's in the hospital. Uh, I wasn't doing good. He passes away, and I was wrecked with guilt because I never opened my mouth to share the gospel with my father. And you know, for, for, for a little while, it was, it was easy to kind of comb over and to justify, because for me, it's as easy as saying, man, the right conversation just didn't come up. Like, he didn't lead in the right way to how I wanted him to, for it to open that door for me to share the gospel with him. Like, it just wasn't the right circumstance. They, like, there was nothing I could do about it. But at the end of the day, when it all got boiled down to bare bones, I punked out. And that's what it came down to. I had set in my heart and in my mind to share the gospel with this man, my dad, and I didn't do it, and I punked out. And it's been burning me ever since. For a year, I wrestled with guilt. I wrestled with guilt. Like, God, how could I not open my mouth? How could I not open my mouth? Like, what, what was going on in me that, that made me take advantage of that time that I couldn't open my mouth? And, and I struggled with that for an entire year. And then, and then God in his wisdom and in his mercy confronted my pride and said, you're not responsible for saving anybody. 
It's not about you. You're but a vessel that I'm using to share this good news of Jesus. They'll hear my voice and will come to me. And on one hand, it was very convicting because it cra- it cr- it o- it's always convicting when it crushes your pride because you elevate yourself somewhere that you think you are. Um, but on the other hand, it was very freeing to know that that burden of actually having to save somebody was not mine to bear. Yet in all of that, there was a flame lit under me that says, stop wasting time. You've got too many friends and too many family and too many people you don't even know who don't know me, and you're wasting time. See, my fear is that we're too laid back sometimes, and we depend too much on the sovereignty of God to just save people without having to share the gospel with them. Now, I, I'll, I'll, it's okay to be nervous when you share the gospel. It's okay to be uncomfortable when you share the gospel. Being uncomfortable and being nervous does not mean that you're not bold. But God wants us to break through our insecurities to make sure somebody hears about him. Because at the end of the day, you'll know what's more important. Are you more worried about what they're going to think about you or more worried about their souls? That'll let you know. So that's why we're here today, because God has been laying this on my heart uh, and impressing it upon my heart for the last few years, and I wanted to share it with you. And one of the beautiful things as we look at Psalm 96 was this is a, this is a song about worship. I mean, this is, a, this is a psalm about worship. It's a psalm about worship. David, David wrote it as the Ark of the Covenant, as they were bringing the Ark back to Jerusalem. Uh, and, and if you know anything about the Ark, the Ark was the place where the presence of God dwelled. Uh, And so for them, as they brought it back to the city of David, as they brought it back to Jerusalem, this was a worshipful time. So that the people were in full-out celebration. And David, their king, was off of his throne celebrating with them in the streets. So far, so so much so that, that Michal, his wife, was irritated by him, that he was worshiping so much. And so as they were worshiping, bringing the ark back in, David wrote a masterful song about this experience of what it looks like to worship God, right? Now, as we look at this song, there's going to be some key things that show us that this song is not only just about worship, but it's also about witness and how those two are intertwined relationally, right? Now, this song is a kingship song which means it's going gonna, it's gonna to let us know about how kingly God is. It's going to let us know about the rule of God and what that rule looks like. So, so look with me at verse, at verse number one. We're going to come back here. I want to deal with worship, but I want to deal with worship uh, not as intently as we're going to deal with witness because we're going through the worship series, but I do want to point a few things out, right? Now, one of the things with this psalm is God is going to call... God is calling Israel to an, express, uh, an expressionful, that's not a word, but I'm going to use it because that's the only thing I come up with just then. So an expressionful, passionate worship relationship with him, right? Now that worship, the theme of that worship he's calling to, calling them to, is going to be evangelistic in nature. 
that evangelistic worship that he's calling them to, to the nations, should cause the nations to in turn worship him and then worship God evangelistically. So it goes from worship, evangelism, back to worship, back to evangelism, back to worship. It's just a cycle. So your worship is going to dictate your evangelism. We'll see it in the text. Your worship is going to dictate your evangelism. Here we go. Now, first of all, when he talks about this worship, he's going to give them uh, a call to worship. In verses 1 through 9, the psalmist is going to give a call to worship. And this call is going to be fervent and instructive. As fervent, in verse 1, he says, Oh, sing to the Lord. Now, that word, oh, is a, it's a little word, two letters, O-H. Oh, it's O, oh, but it's, there's something packed in that O oh, uh, that says, that gives it great depth of meaning or feeling or emotion where he could have just said, sing to the Lord. Come sing to the Lord. But when he says, oh, sing to the Lord, there's, there's, there's a depth there that he wants to convey to you that says, this singing of the Lord is greater and bigger than you are. But not only is this psalm and the call to worship a fervent call, it's an instructive call. Right? In verse 1, uh, it says that worship is owed to God and to be directed to him. That's why he says, sing where? To the Lord. Right? It's to be direct, owed to God and directed to him. The phrase, all the earth, in verse 1b, uh, indicates that worship is a universal obligation. Even those who do not worship are under this obligation. So when God calls the whole earth to worship him, it's not just the people of Israel. He's calling everyone, even those outside of the covenant community, to worship him. That's why he says, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Which means, like, like, like I just read, there's an obligation for those in the covenant community to recognize that God is God and to worship him. But that it doesn't nullify the obligation just because you don't have a relationship with God. The obligation remains that says, even if you don't know me as Lord and Savior, there's an obligation over your head that says you are demanded to worship me. Because I am who I am and you are who you are, it's owed to me that you worship, regardless of if you want to or not. The recurring phrase, uh, to the Lord, reminds us that this worship is to be directed to God. Uh, It would seem to go without saying that God is the object of the worship. However, we have to constantly be reminded of this because we have the tendency to shift the focus of worship to ourselves. Right? Now, worship, the purpose of worship is to take us from where we are and point us to God. Right? So when we worship and it's directed to God, it takes the focus off of us and off of our circumstance and to the God who's awesome and glorious. Right? Verses 1, 2, and 7, and 8. Worship, and we're just going to run through this, so bear with me. Worship is to be glad and openly expressed. It's to be glad and openly expressed. Three times the psalmist uses the word sing. We associate singing with the gladness of heart, but worship is not to remain in the heart. It is to come out of the mouth. The same truths are brought out in the word give or the word ascribe in verses 7 and 8 or give to the Lord worship, um, uh, which refers to the giving of praise. Y'all with me? Worship is to be new. 
verse 1. Uh, it says, sing to the Lord a new song. We're going to talk about a little bit more about what that new song looks like as we get to worship. Uh, but this doesn't mean uh, that we can't use the same songs or words we have used before in worship, but rather these songs and words should spring from the hearts that have gone anew over the greatness of our God. Right? Worship is to spring from hearts that are fresh with the wonder and glory of all that God is. Right? Verse 8, worship is to be public. Worship is to be public. The phrase into his courts brings us to the public aspect of worship. The people were to do their singing and giving praise in a place designated for worship. Though private worship is necessary, it can't replace public worship. Right? Verse 9, worship is to be in the beauty of holiness. We're going to cover beauty of holiness a little bit later too as we cover witness. But uh, we must worship him with holy hearts sanctified by the grace of God, devoted to the glory of God, and purified from the pollution of sin, right? And then last but not least, in verse 9, worship is to be reverent. We are to worship uh, with a sense of all that is born from realizing who God is. Those who ridicule worship or reverence in worship only give evidence that they are not wholly impressed with the God whom the reverent worship is due. I'm going to read that again. Those who ridicule reverence in worship only give evidence that they are not wholly impressed with the God who, with whom reverent worship is due, right? And we see this type of reverent worship all through uh, this psalm. Verse 4, God is great. Verses 4 and 5, he alone is God. Verse 5, he is the creator of all things. Verse 6, heaven is filled with his majesty and, pl- and splendor. And verse 6, his sanctuary is filled uh, with his strength uh, and beauty. And our worship services ought to display the same reverence worship that the psalmist is calling us to. Right? Now, I grew up in the old church, uh, Baptist church. So, so uh, when, I, when I was growing up in church, they, there was, they, they had uh, a particular sense of the reverence of God the reverence that you were supposed to have to God, right? So much so, me and my wife were talking about this the other day, so much so that, like, you can't just walk up on the pulpit. I don't know if y'all know that, right? Now, now, if y'all stay, if you stay after the gathering, you know, all the kids going to come down, and they're going to just bombard the, pool, the stage up here, and they run around, and, and you know, we, I mean, you know, they run around and play with the microphones, and just, they, this is like, this is the spot to be after service for the little kids, right? Now, back in the day, you can't come up here right? Like, you can't come up here and, and let your kid come up here. They're going to be looking at you crazy, right? If you need to get something, you got to go the long way around, right? You can't just walk across. Because for, for the old church, there was a sense where, 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 the God, where the word of God was being proclaimed from was holy ground, not because the man was holy, but because the presence of God was here, and this is where he was speaking from, Right. So we can talk about the old church's traditionalism, but sometimes they have a sense of of the reverent, all inspiring nature of who God is that helps shape their understanding of they need to be impressed with this God. Right. But the psalm isn't just calling us to worship, but it's calling us to witness. Right. Look at verses one and two with me. Now, the author orders the Jewish audience not only to sing to the Lord, but also to proclaim his salvation day after day, right? And declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous deeds uh, among the peoples. Now, if you look at that word uh, in verse um, uh, verse 2, 2b, where it says tell of his salvation day to day, that word tell or proclaim uh, in the Hebrew is, uh, is the Hebrew word for evangelism or to bring good news, to announce good tidings, or to announce the gospel, 
right? So in verse 2, now, mind you, this is Old Testament. So side note, forgot this, side note real quick. God's mission to the nations did not begin in Matthew uh, chapter 28 with the Great Commission, right? Great Commission, right? Uh, Go ye therefore and make disciples, uh, baptizing them, teach them to observe, uh, observe all that I commanded you, right? God's intent on reaching lost people did not start there right? Genesis chapter 3, God calls Adam, Adam, where are you? He goes after Adam, right? The whole reason for him uh, uh, calling Israel out to himself was so that they could be a light to the nations, right? They weren't supposed to be an ingrown toenail, right? Uh, 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 Minister Brandon preached last week from the book of Jonah. The entire book of Jonah is about God reaching a heathen nation in Nineveh, Right. So God's mission to reach the lost did not start in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission. Y'all with me? OK. So so in, uh, in verse two, it says, tell of his salvation from day to day or uh, bring good news, announce good tidings, announce the gospel. Right. In uh, verse one, it says, sing to the Lord a new song. Right. Now, singing to a new song, singing to the Lord a new song suggests that new mercies had been received. Right. So singing a new song. Uh, is the product of new affections, clothed with new expressions. A new song is a song for new favors and for those compassions which are new every, mer- every morning. Fresh mercies demand fresh expressions of thanksgiving. Right? So what is, what is this talking about? When he says sing a new ta- song to the Lord, he's saying don't let your worship of God be so stale that you don't worship him. Right? Now, I, I don't know. God is active every single day. You might not want to notice the little small things that God does, and you want to only focus on some of the big things that God does, but, but the Bible says that mercies are new every morning, right? And so the psalmist is saying to you, every morning there should be a posture of thankfulness to God that says, God, I'm thankful for what you're doing, I'm thankful for what you did, and I'm thankful for what you're going to do. And so sometimes there needs to be a posture in of our hearts that says, God, I'm going to worship you just because you're good. And I'm going to do it every single day of my life because your mercies are new every single day of my life. So he says, worship the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. But notice that he's not, he's not saying sing to the Lord a new song to Israel. Remember we talked about that obligation that's over the whole earth? He says, he says sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. And then he says, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Now, the theme of this worship that, God, that the psalmist is calling them to is one of salvation. That's why he says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Now, that's not a separate salvation. That's a salvation that's tied to this worship and this new song and this blessing of God's name that God is calling them to. So when he says, tell them uh, of, of the salvation that God gives from day to day, he's saying, tell them of this God who delivers. Tell them of this God who helps. Tell, this, uh, tell them of this God who secures, who's victorious, uh, and who has power and might in his hands, right? And so from day to day, when he says, he says, I want you to tell of the wonders of God. I want you to do it every single day uh, for the rest of your lives. And he says, the, the, intensif- uh, the day-to-day intensifies the personal experience of God's deliverance. It is a subject that can never be exhausted. So regardless of whether you know it or God, God is saving you on a daily basis. God, God, is, God is delivering you on a daily basis. 
whether or not it's from circumstance, whether or not it's from sin, whether or not it's from you, yourself, God is saving you on a daily basis. Right? But, but again, get, get, get this. He's not just saving you so you can be thankful in your heart and have a song in your heart. He says, sing to the Lord, tell, declare, proclaim that his salvation is good day after day, which means something needs to be coming out your mouth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Verse 3, look at me, verse 3. Then when he says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. Now, the context demands that God's character, which is his glory, and his conduct, which are, are his deeds, be declared universally and internationally. That's why it says, tell of his glory and his marvelous works among the nations and all the peoples, right, outside of the covenant community, right? Now, what are some of these wonders uh, that Israel would be telling about on a daily basis. Well, uh, if you know anything about the, the history of Israel, uh, there was this God who uh, entered into a burning bush and called Moses over to talk to him, uh, and the bush was on fire, yet it was not burned, right? Or when he uh, sent the plagues to Egypt uh, to, to uh, unloose Pharaoh's grip on the hands of his people and delivered them from bondage. Uh, or they could have told about how, as they were escaping, God split open uh, a mighty sea and allowed them to cross over and dry land. Uh, and then after they got back and their, cap their captors were chasing them, he allowed it to, to come back over them and, and, and allowed them to get away. Or he could have been talking about how God guided them by fire at night and by a pillar of cloud in the day. Or how God gave them the holy commandments of what it looked like to obey him on a daily basis at Mount Sinai. Or how they went into Jericho and defeated the enemies and God gave them the land. They could be talking about any of these things about the glory of God. And so God's saying, I want you to tell people what I've done for you. Which means what? If you're going to tell people what God's done for you, then you need to be able to identify God's track record in your life. See, see, some, sometimes we're like, some, you know, they got, the, they got the little horse rides down in Center City. We can get on, you know, with your wife and kids, take a nice little, you know, scenic stroll around the, around the city and stuff. And if you notice the horses, they got these little black things, these little blinders on, right? Because uh, it gives them tunnel vision to be able to see where they're going and their destination. But it distracts them from all the mess that's happening around them so they won't get scared off, right? And sometimes when we're going through things, we have this tunnel vision that allows us only to see our our circumstance right there and we forget about all the the wonderful and great things that God has done outside of our little narrow tunnel vision and he's saying sometimes you need to in your circumstance remember that God has been good to you See, see, it's easy, it's easy to, to get caught up in your own little world. God, how come you can't do this? God, why you ain't doing this? God, I've been faithful to you. God, I've been reading my Bible. God, I've been praying. God, I've been giving a little bit more. And you forget everything that he's done for you up until then. And so he's calling them not just to remember what he's done for them, but to say, what I've done for you should speak in worship to those who you're worshiping with and to. People need to know what God has done for you. Now, don't be twisted. That's not the gospel. The gospel isn't your testimony of what God's done for you. Yet, he does want you to declare how good he is 
to those around you. Look at verse 4 or 5 for me. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Uh, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Now these verses explain to the Gentiles that there is only one God truly worthy of worship. He is to be feared above all gods because he made the heavens. Uh, now this, the, the, in, verse, uh, in verse 5, um, it says, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Now, there's, there's some, some uh, funny wordplay going on here where, where the psalmist uses the word Elohim for God and Elohim uh, for worthless idols. And the English translation of that basically says what he's saying is the, these mighty beings are mighty useless or, or they are the greatest nothings of all. Uh, is what the verse is saying. And so there there should be an expectation in your worship, in your evangelistic witness that lets people know that the gods they serve are but nothings, great nothings, right? So so now what what is that going to bring? That's going to bring a little bit of conflict because if you come to somebody and they're worshiping this God that they see as great and wonderful and providing their needs, it's going to provide conflict when you bring before them this God who made the heavens. That's why he said, he said uh, in verse 5, uh, for the, the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens, right? Which is an example of how great our God is and that the, the very gods that you serve are living in the world that my God created. But there does need to be a communication. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know that little kids, how they do it. My, my, my daddy's better than yours type thing. Don't do that. But it's basically my God's better than yours. <laughs> Don't say it like that, though. But that's basically what it is. Right? Look at verse 8 with me. Oh, let's read six through eight. Let's stay at six real quick and read, and read down there. Uh, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Uh, and then he gets to verse seven and he says, ascribe to the Lord or give to the Lord. O families of the peoples, ascribe or give to the Lord glory and strength. Uh, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Uh, bring an offering and come into uh, his courts. Uh, now verse six Uh, describes or lists some of the attributes of God, which are the splendor, majesty, strength, uh, and beauty. Uh, And the Gentiles, uh, as well as Israel, are called to ascribe or acknowledge these attributes that belong to God, right? And so the glory due his name is the respect and honor of God's character uh, that that God's character deserves, right? Now listen to this. Uh, Giving God the glory due his name is not giving him something from outside of himself. It is the recognition of something that already belongs to him. So as the psalmist tells uh, the people to ascribe to the Lord uh, the glory and strength and ascribe to him the glory due his name, and he's calling them to worship, he's not saying to give God those things. He's saying you can't give God. Those already belong to God. Splendor and majesty and strength and beauty and glory and holiness belong to God already. It's a recognition on your part that God has them, and that's why you need to worship. And then he says, tremble, uh, uh, um, bring an offering uh, and come into uh, his courts, uh, right? And so the offering is that which subjects bring to their Lord or that, that their object of worship in token of their submission, right? Uh, now, worship has, is defined as the action of human beings 
and expressing homage to God because he is worthy of it. It covers activities such as adoration, thanksgiving, prayers, offering of sacrifice, and the making of vows. Um, now, when we get down to verse 9, it says, worship the Lord, right, uh, in the splendor of holiness, right? Uh, so if we're saying that the action of worship uh, uh, is expressing homage to God because he's worthy through adoration, thanksgiving, prayers, offering sacrifice, and making of vows, right? We're supposed to, the psalmist is saying, do that in the splendor of holiness, right? Well, what does the splendor of holiness look like? If you remember the priests, they had certain requirements of both dress and consecration that were supposed to happen before they could go into the Holy of Holies and into the presence of God, right? So much so that they used to tie a little rope around them just in case they forgot something and, and God struck them dead, that they could just pull them out to get them out of there, right? Now, that's how serious the holiness of God is. The holiness of God is so serious that you can't just come before God any old type of way and think you're going to live, right? Now, we're on the other side of, of the, the, the grace covenant, so we get the benefit of not being smitten down if we don't come before God just any old type of way. But listen what this says about holiness. Holiness refers to moral purity or being set apart for God. Uh, God's purity of character forms the foundation of holiness, and sac any sacred item or person being spoke of as holy is in the sense of being separated unto God. The connection between the two senses of holiness, both God's and ours, uh, is, lies in the inability of God's holy nature to tolerate impurity without destroying it. Right? Holy things must remain separate or they will be destroyed in the presence of God. The danger of God's holiness lies behind biblical references like Exodus 19:22, where the people must consecrate themselves so that Yahweh will not break out against them. So what this means is when, when the psalmist says to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness is you, there needs to be a posture of rightness, uprightness in your heart before you come before God. You can't just come before God any old type of way and worship. You can't come before God with a bunch of mess and sin in your life. Now, that's not saying that we all don't see him. We're coming to God for repentance. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the jacked upness of your wickedness that tells you you can be any old type of way and live any old type of way and not tell nobody about it and then come before the Lord and act like he's going to receive your worship with all this mess clouding away. So he's saying, be mindful when you come before the Lord to worship that everything in your life is straight. Because you can't just come before the Lord any old type of way. Look at verse 10 with me. The emphasis on witness becomes even more apparent and sustained in these last few verses uh, because God's people are to declare this message to the nations. The Lord reigns. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Which means he's king or he has rulership over. Right? So, again, when we talk about that obligation of worship, the, the, the rulership of God or the, the reign of God is non-negotiable. Regardless of if you acknowledge his reign or not, the Lord reigns. Right Now, those who may be inclined to doubt the reign of the Lord will eventually have all the evidence they need for the very reign that qu they question will become crystal clear when God comes and he judges the people. Right? And so in, in verse 10 it says, say, to, say among the nations the Lord reigns. 
Uh, yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity, right? And then it talks about how at his coming, the entire earth, all of creation will be glad and will rejoice in awaiting his cry. Because if you, creation, the Bible says, is groaning right now in anticipation of the coming of God. But when Jesus cracks the sky and comes through on, his, on the white horse, creation will be joyfully expressive in worship and in receiving of this Lord who will reign over them, right? And we see that even in this psalm, even in this psalm 96, the Old Testament, where, God, where Jesus hasn't even come yet, it talks about him coming back and judging the people, right? Look at verse 13 for me. Uh, it's, uh, uh, we'll look at 12b and then 13. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's in faithfulness. So when God comes, he's going to judge the world, right? But he's going to set up his eternal reign and government, and he's going to judge, and he's going to have the standard of his truth. So even though we're under shady government right now, which we should be praying to, uh, praying, not praying to, praying for, uh, based on Romans, uh, we still, they still are flawed men who many times are selfish and have their own intents uh, and purposes in the middle of their hearts and minds as they make decisions. However, the Bible says that when Jesus comes back and he sets up his government and his reign and his authority, everything will be laid bare. And whether or not you believe it to be true, his truth will reign and his truth will rule and you will subject yourself and under the authority of his truth and his righteousness. And there's no questions to be asked. There's no debatings to be had. It's going to be Jesus' way and that's it. This psalm is unmistakable in its sediment that all the nations ought to know Yahweh and make him known. And again, it goes from worship, God's calling you, to worship, right, expressively, joyfully, with a glad heart. It's supposed to be directed to God. But that, the theme of that worship is supposed to be evangelistic in nature. That's why he says, uh, declare to all the nations, tell of my salvation day to day, right? Tell them that the Lord reigns. Uh, but the, the purpose of your worship being evangelistic in nature is so that the nations will see this great and awesome God and in turn worship and then turn outward and worship evangelistically as well. Thus, the praise of God or worship of God preceded preaching, but both were part of Israel's witness to the nations. This, uh, the point is that there was a call for an active witness by Israel to the Gentiles, right? Now, two things to think about as we, uh, uh, before, before I close, two things I want you to think about. Uh, the, the purpose of me sharing this with you today is one, to provoke your hearts that God is calling you to be intensive, uh, passionate worshipers of him. It's unmistakable. God wants you to worship him with all that you are, right? But he doesn't want you just to worship him. If you worship God and you stop there, you've fallen short of what he intends for you. God wants you to worship him, and in that worship, he wants you to tell about how great he is. As we do that, as we, as we, tell, about how, as we tell about how great he is, I want you to think about uh, something real quick. Does your life promote credibility for the gospel? 
Does your life promote credibility for the gospel? What do I mean by that? It's very difficult to expect someone to hear the message of your words when the actions of your life are in disarray. You, you can't be gossipy and have fits of rage and be prideful, sexually immoral. You, you can't not walk in the holiness of God and then expect someone to receive the message of good news that you want to share. It's impossible. And so sometimes you have to earn the right to share the gospel with somebody through credibility and common ground. What, so what does your life look like? We've got to be mindful of the posture of our hearts and how our lives reflect the glory of God. We have to be mindful of how our lives reflect the glory of God. And you may not think some things are a big deal. You may overlook some things. You may say it's not a big deal in your heart. You might try to justify away why your life doesn't look the way God wants it to look like. But people who do not believe in Jesus Christ can tell the difference. And if your life is not modeled after the Christ-likeness of Jesus, then your message might as well, like, be trash. What does your life look like? Because your life is a representation of your ability to share the gospel with other people. Two, what are you afraid of? I'd be lying to you if I said that there aren't people in here right now that are afraid to share the gospel. Either with your friends or your family because you're afraid of what people might think of you. You're afraid of being ostracized. Afraid of being rejected. Some of you will share the gospel with everyone except those closest to you because of the things that I've just named. Some of you are afraid because you don't know what to say or how to say it. Let me do this real quick. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. And I want to show something, share something with you. The one thing I want us to walk away with today is a sense of urgency in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Because there is a sense of urgency. And it's easy to say that every day is not promised to you until you lose somebody close to you. It's very easy. So if you're struggling with how to share the gospel and where to share the gospel and, and what to say. I'll, I'll just say this, and this isn't the, this isn't the rule, this is just, just a, a model, right? Um, but one of the biggest things in being able to communicate the gospel is being able to identify common ground with the individual you're communicating with, right? Now, one of the things Paul said, he said, I become all things to all men, right? Right, that's one of the things he said. And so I just wanna show you an example of that. Look at, look at Genesis, uh, not Genesis, uh, Acts chapter 17. Verse 1, uh, and so we're going to look at how Paul related to both the Jews and also to the Gentiles. 
Now, when they had passed through Epiphopolis and Apollonoli, uh, uh, why am I so tongue-tied right now? Uh, Apollabob. Uh, uh, they came to uh, <laughs> Thessalonica, uh, where there were, was a synagogue of the Jews, right? Uh, and Paul went in, as was his custom, so he had been doing this for a while, right? Uh, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scripture. So Paul sent, Paul sent some time there. It wasn't just a one and done. As was his custom, he would go into a city. He would spend a few weeks in the synagogue, right? Three Sabbath days, three weeks, right? And so Paul, it wasn't just a one hit or quitter and then get out again, right? Uh, sorry, one hit or quitter. I'm sorry. I didn't, that's, you know, that old Mike Tyson, one hit or quitter and then, sorry. Um, <laughs> Uh, as was his custom, on three Sabbath day, he reasoned, he reasoned with them from the scripture. So he, he, he's, he's spending time with them, but he's reasoning with them from the word of God, right? From the scriptures, right? But look at what that reasoning looked like. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, right? It says explaining and, and, and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and raise from the dead, right? Now, this is intricate in what Paul did. Paul didn't go in and communicate Jesus right away, right? Because for them, they believed in the Messiah. They believed in the coming of the Holy One, right? And so Paul, based on the scriptures, which were old, their Old Testament scriptures at the time, he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the scriptures that, we, that they use, that I use as well, and I'm going to show them from their end how this Christ was supposed to suffer and die, right? I want them to get to a point where they say, okay, we can see from the scriptures how the Messiah was supposed to suffer and die, right? You guys with me? Look what, he's do, look, look what he does next. He says, um, uh, it was so explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul spent time with them walking through the Torah, walking through the prophets, the law, and, and the writings, and proving to them and to explain it, it was necessary for this Messiah that we believe in to suffer and die. Right. Now, we're there. We're on the same page. Yes, I'm with you, Paul. Now, this Jesus who I'm telling you about is the Messiah. He suffered and died. So Paul created a, a, a culture of common ground with the Jews where they could identify that, that this Messiah was supposed to suffer and die, and now he can proceed to say, this, this, this Messiah that we're talking about, that's who Jesus was. But there was common ground built first so that he didn't just come in saying, Jesus, 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 you guys are completely wrong. He built a common ground of, listen, we're believing the same things. I just want you to get on the same page with me. All right, we believe this. This man we're talking about just suffered and died. His name is Jesus. He built common ground. Look, look later on in, in verse 17 with me. Verse 17, verse, um, uh, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked with him, within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those uh, that happened to be there, right? Uh, now, some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers conversed with him also. And so they sent Paul to the area of guys to, so that he could explain what this new teaching was that he was bringing forth. Go down to verse 22 with me. So Paul, standing in the midst of the area of said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he proceeds to tell them about Jesus, right? Now, they were, they were of a different religious group. Uh, he was in Athens, a uh, very idolatrous country where they worshiped all types of God. Paul's walking through the city. He sees all of the idols uh, that they worship. What did he say But when he first gets in front of the group? He doesn't start bashing them for their idolatry. He says, I see that you're very religious. I see that you're men who love religion. Then he says, he didn't say you're an idol worship. He said, I, I'm observing the objects of your worship. And then I noticed something, that you have a, 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 a God here that's the unknown God. Well, I know who that unknown God is. Again, as with the Jews, Paul went to Athens and he created common ground with them, not by insulting them or demeaning what they were doing, but he said, I see that you're very religious. I see that you're a worshiper. Let me redirect your worship. Back to Psalm 96, if you were holding your finger there. And I'm, I'm almost done. We're about to close. What we're really saying when we're afraid to share the gospel for whatever reason, for whether you're nervous, you can't build up the courage, whether you're worried about what people are going to think about you, whether you're worried about being rejected, essentially what you're saying is that, God, you are not powerful enough to save. At the heart of what you're saying is, God, you are not powerful enough to save. And as I begin to think on that, I was reminded of a few stories in the New Testament of people who had to rely on the power and the strength of God. In the book of Matthew, there was a woman who had a discharge for 12 years. She had never met Jesus by all accounts, had never spoken to him. She had just heard about his saving power. And she said, if I can just get near him, I can be healed. And so she goes to where Jesus is, and as usual, there's a crowd of people following him, and she can't get through. And she's pushing away, trying to get through the people and the obstacles and the junk. And she was so determined, having never met Jesus before in her life, that he could save her. She said, if I can but touch his garment, if I can touch the outer of his clothes, I know that I'll be changed. That's all. She, she said, I don't even need to touch him. I don't need to touch him. I don't need to talk to him. If I can just get to him, if I can get to what he's wearing, I don't know if you get that. If I can just touch what he's wearing, she said, if I can just touch but the hem of his garment, I know I'll be changed. That's the type of power she believed in. There were two men on the side of the road who were blind, and they, they couldn't see Jesus, but they heard him because the crowds were coming by. And they said, son of David, will you come and save us? And they were waiting on Jesus, and the crowds began to rebuke them. God doesn't have time for you. But they believed the power of God, and they kept crying out anyway. And God came over and made those men see for the first time of their life, seeing yellow and blue and trees and birds, all because they were unrelenting in their pursuit that God could do something for them that they couldn't do for themselves. A centurion comes to Jesus. 
He's not even of the covenant community. He comes to Jesus. I've got a servant that's paralyzed, Lord. Can you, can you do something about it? Jesus is like, sure enough, I'll come to the crib. He's like, no, I don't want you at my house because uh, my house is not worthy to have you come in. But listen, I'm a man of authority. Just do this. Just say it and it'll be done. He said, never in Israel have I seen faith like this. This man, not even a part of the covenant community, was so enthralled and so believed in the power of God that he said, if you speak it from a distance, it'll happen. One of my favorites, there's a, a crippled guy, never walked before in his life. Come to the crib. Jesus is already in there healing people, right? So they go to the roof because there's no room to get him in. They lower him down to where Jesus is. That's how, it, that's how, that's how determined they were. They said, listen, we got to go to the roof and lower him down to bypass all these people, right? And so they get in there and Jesus has the audacity to, as he's healing everybody else, to say, your sins are forgiven. This man came to be physically healed, and Jesus said, I declare forgiveness to you, right? And so the man, I don't know what the man's response was. I would have been looking at him like, I want to walk, Jesus. But, but Jesus gave him forgiveness of sins. And so the people around are like, who is this dude that can come in here and start forgiving sins? And Jesus, in his heart, knows what they're talking about. And he says, listen, you want a little simple sign, like giving somebody some legs to walk? That's all you want from me? Do you know who I am? am do you know what I can do and all you want to see is somebody walk listen just so you know who's running this show in here you get up and walk and you go home the power of everything that Jesus did and healing people and give, feeding the poor and doing all those things was just to point to the fact that he was indeed God and he was able to save. Listen, listen. If you're more concerned about what people think about you, then you don't believe in the power, the power of God. The salvation that God offers has to take precedent and priority over any feeling that you might feel when it comes time to share the gospel. It's got to take precedent. Because if, 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 if you're more concerned about you and not the glory of God, there's going to be a lot of people that go to hell. Worship and witness. Worship and witness. What will you do? Let's pray.